It's October 7th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Starting us off this hour, Jason Sewell from Dev League returns. This time he's here to tell us about a Dev League Uber hackathon. Then Rob Kelso will join us by phone from the Big Island to tell us about the Pisces Lunar Landing Pad Project. And finally, for the remainder of the hour, we will talk to Vern Biagi and Gerard Fryer about Hawaii's tsunami early warning system. So, we're always open to your thoughts or questions, so be ready to call in or tweet after the break. And of course, we've got Jason sitting right here. He's from Dev League, and he's here to tell us about this Uber hackathon. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you're, you know, we've got a chair with your name on it, so <laughs> you're like a regular. Now, Dev League is really active, uh, doing quite a bit of stuff. You, we, we had you come on and talk about the uh, sort of the prep preparation for the intensive that you guys do uh, a couple times a year, and, and now uh, this is primarily for, and you can talk about it, the developers, mm-hmm. and now you guys are actually hosting this uh, hackathon. So tell us a little bit about this hackathon. Okay, so um, really the main premise of the hackathon is that we're partnering with Uber to to sponsor an event kind of um, commemorating a partnership that we did with them um, to kind of use some of their uh, their technology in our curriculum um, and to kind of provide or pair up mentors in, in, within their company with students of ours. So we're always looking for opportunity, right? That's our, our main kind of focus in terms of giving our students access and opportunity as much as we can. So Uber is that di- disruptive transportation network company that first sort of helps you summon a limo and a taxi and then now just everyday other drivers who want to ride share with you. And um, I can see that they're a technology play and they would support a hackathon because they want to find talent in different communities. Is this something that they do elsewhere? And specifically, why reach out to a boot camp such as Dev League? Um, yeah, they've they've I think um, they've done their own hackathons and, and it's kind of a, a standard way to promote, you know, an API and kind of get traction around it. Um, they've been they've reached out to boot camps because they're always looking for developer talent. Um, so it was a way for them, I think, to um, to, you know, kind of get get some adoption, um, get potential, you know, recruits that that may be great developers and and, you know, possibly for the right people that could turn into a job opportunity for a, a very large company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, normally, you know, hackathons are kind of a 54-hour event. People come together. They look at uh, uh, perhaps uh, creating an application based on some parameters. Uh, what are some of the parameters that, that Uber is, is sort of setting around this uh, hackathon challenge? Um, yeah, so the the main parameter is that whatever people decide to build, that it, it some to some extent it's it's integrating the, uh, some component of the Uber API, and that's really the main kind of um, parameter that 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 really kind of we're we're enforcing, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But really, it's just you know looking at, at what's there and and having fun with it. That's really what we want people to do is just come out and have a good time and. And just build some stuff. So hackathons are generally have themes, and they are based around specific APIs. Bert has organized some open data hackathons using open government data sets, for example. There have been hackathons to use specific Microsoft, say, APIs and front ends yep. and tools. So if I were actually talented and smart and was a developer and was saying, yeah, I'd like to play with Uber's data, Uber's application programming interface, what sort of things can I get in and put out and pull? And I mean, I, I'm really having a hard time envisioning what a tool might do with Uber data. 
Um, yeah, and that's that's the fun part is really kind of, you know, the creative things that people come up with. I don't have all the answers for that either, but, um, you know, it's anywhere from um, using their OAuth technology to kind of authenticate users, much like, you know, log in with GitHub, log in with Facebook, log in with Twitter. You know, you could do, you know, something that's maybe log in with Uber. Mm. Um, they have price estimates, time estimates. You can, you know, kind of like the Uber app, you can book a car. Um, you can uh, get map data. So um, there's it, it's a pretty extensive API, and, and people can um, go to uh, developer.uber.com to kind of see see what's there and really kind of get those ideas rolling. Um, we're going to do two pre-events, and one of them is going to be kind of going over the API a little bit so that we can give some people some perspective prior to the event and kind of they can come in with some ideas and just hit the ground rolling and don't have to spend the whole first night yeah, trying to figure it out. That's what I was going to ask you about uh, anything that you could learn or prep yourself with prior to coming into the hackathon. So you, you have this uh, prep event. You're going to go over the application programming interface. You're going to give people some idea of what its capability um, are. Are you just looking for programmers or are you looking for others to join in? I mean, you know, as untalented as, as the two of us are, <laughs> Are you looking for people that have more than just developer skills? Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is uh, by and large, this is really a community event, and that's that's really what's at the heart of all of this. Is is that's why we decided to do it um, not only in Honolulu and not only in a physical location, but really distribute it across the islands too, so that every island could have a physical location for developers to come together at that location and still be connected, you know, um, across the state as a whole. And so we're partnering with a company called Live Coding TV hmm. that's going to be streaming the event. And so everybody will be able to um, kind of interact with each other and see each other, um, you know, during the, during the course of the event. But, yeah, we're looking for developers, designers. If anybody just wants to come out and contribute and, and, and contribute, be a part of that community and, and make it a good time. We'll find stuff for them to do. We're even in terms of prizes. We're really trying to distribute the prize pool that everybody that attends is eligible for. You know, for for some kind of prize, whether it's students, um, experienced developers, designers are going to be a huge need. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And and yeah, for anybody that wants to come and just just help, you know, we will find stuff for you, for them to do and 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 make it a good time for them as well. Yeah. Right. Other hackathons have had places for designers, for marketers, for for people who have a specific skill, you know, that you, if you're really good at juggling, maybe we can find yeah. a role for a juggler on our team. But, <laughs> I, but I like We do have a Best Dressed Award. There you go. Well, you, you mentioned how it's open to everyone, and I would imagine that the set, everyone, can include uh, regular folks like Bert and I. Um, but you mentioned prizes. So uh, there are a number of really talented programmers and developers in our community. They could probably take a look at this API and come out with an app instantly that can say that if you want to take your dog to a dog grooming place, we have an app that can do that and tell you how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost you. But what about people who are more just beginning? In fact, what if they're beginners in your Dev League program? Um, is there an opportunity for them to compete in any way to win prizes? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, actually a good friend of your guys and mine as well, Ryan Cano, actually gave me some really good advice in terms of um, incentivizing it is um, we really wanted to kind of set up, you know, have prizes, make it worth coming out, you know, have a chance for people to win some cool stuff that they like, but not make it about cash, not make it about kind of making the best app and, and winning a large pot. So we're really kind of um, looking at it. How do we distribute the prize pool this so that everybody that attends really kind of has a chance to, you know, um, get some, you know, get some takeaway from the event. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody that registers is, is automatically, um, as of today, going to get 
a three-month uh, free subscription to frontendmasters.com, which is a great uh, programming content site from some of the top people in the industry. Um, so our friend Mark Grabonski over there is is going to everybody that registers will get a limited subscription to that site. Um, and then we'll have some longer subscriptions for, I think, probably students. I think we'll try to make that an incentive for them. But we're going to try to do, like, gift cards for, like, Masterop for people that want to get keyboards and have some gaming gear and um, – and, uh, So gadgets, uh, geeky gifts, yeah, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. You know, things with cash value, but it's not all about just winning money. So, so you know, I, I, um, I kind of think that the Uber probably has this huge team of programmers and developers that work on a variety of different things. I mean, what do they need the community to come in and – look at doing is there that creative element that perhaps is outside of the uber uh let's say ecosystem well yeah i mean they're they're a large company and growing more and more so i mean you know tech companies like that value talent you know above all else that really kind of drives them you know in that innovation space so they're always on the lookout for um for new developers and so it's a good opportunity that potentially you know for for the right people that you know they do something that makes them stand out um two of the uber engineers are going to come out to the event and participate as mm-hmm, mentors mm-hmm. and judges and so it's a good opportunity to get in front of you know if, if those engineers see something get you know guess what they're going to do they're going to go back and say hey hey boss you know to we you know this so not, is what we saw. Not explicitly know. a recruiting event, but certainly if you have some stuff that you want to show off, this is probably a pretty good audience. Yeah. Uh, for, so when's for the uh, when's the uh, the warm up event? The uh, let me pre hackathon event. Uh, so we're gonna do um, on October twenty third, which is a Friday. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that is the event itself. Well, that's good to know. So October 22nd <laughs> is the big hackathon. Yes. Well, we'll put that so October 23rd through the 25th is the event. Uh, October 13th uh, at 6 p.m. we're going to do an uh, an overview of the API. Okay, that's very um, important. We'll do that virtually so that everybody can attend ah, okay. um, regardless of location. And then October 19th at 6 p.m. Uh, we're going to go over like deployment strategies and things that people can prepare that – um, you know, at the end of the hackathon, you're not trying to get it up to show somebody and that, um, you know, we can kind of prepare people to have a, a smooth, you know, kind of smooth transition to being able to demo it. So those two in-person events, the 19th, the deployment strategies at 6 p.m. and the October 23rd, beginning of the weekend hackathon, where are these events physically taking place? Uh, so th- we will have a physical uh, space on on uh, Oahu. We'll be at the Box Jelly for mm-hmm. the entirety of the event. Okay. Um, on the Big Island, it will be at Startup Suite 8, uh, which is in Kamuela. Kamuela, yes. um, uh-huh. beautiful. And Maui will hold the kickoff event at um, at the Maui Equ- Economic Development Board, and then they will move you over to the Maui Research Technology Center for the rest of the weekend. And then on Kauai, um, our friend um, over at Ukulele Underground, Ryan Asaki, is going yes. to be hosting uh, at the Anchor Cover Shopping Center and, and hosting a space over there. Now, interestingly, Uber is not yet deployed on the Big Island and Kauai. Yep. So it's interesting that there's this outreach to the developers in those communities, even though they're not yet ready to uh, necessarily use the services that this API exposes. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean. It's, 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 it's about having a good time and just hacking on some stuff and seeing what we can build. Um, it, it really was kind of something that we wanted to do was take it out of just a local event about the boot camp and the students and really open it up to the community as a whole and, and try to get everybody involved and represent as a whole that we do have technical talent here and, and you know, experienced talent and people that are really hungry to keep, you know, keep learning and, and kind of getting their feet wet, too. So, um, so yeah, that's 
Sounds good. Sounds good. So uh, where can someone go to find more information on these events? Uh, so we have a website up, uh, uberhackathon.devleague.com. Um, we have all the information there, and that will continue to develop as kind of things um, you know, take shape over the next few weeks. And there's registration links on that on that page. And so, um, yeah, everybody, you know, register today, and, and we hope to see you there. And, and really, you know, come have a good time with, with like-minded folks and, and – um, let's make it a good event. Sounds, Sounds good. Fantastic. Sounds great. Thank you, Jason, for uh, coming down and telling everyone about that. Well, yeah, you know, so you we're going to um, uh, share a couple other things that have been going on. And I think uh, there's actually an event happening right after this show that I know one of our ah. co-hosts are going to be attending. So, Mr. Ozawa, yes. can you tell us a little about a little bit about this uh, Blue Startup cohort right. number six? So, Blue Startups, which is the longest running, the first uh, venture accelerator, technology startup accelerator here in Hawaii, of mm-hmm. course, founded mm-hmm. by Hank Rogers. He of Tetris fame, also Blue. Uh, Planet Foundation, Blue Mars, and a number of other technology ventures. Now Blue Ion, the renewable battery mm-hmm, company, mm-hmm. along with um, others. So they are now moving into their sixth cohort. This is their sixth group of family uh, of companies that are trying to benefit from mentorship, from leadership, from guidance, and and certainly networking and connections to develop a startup to make it successful. So tonight at six p.m. at Blue Startups headquarters at. Uh, um, uh, 55 Merchant Street, it's uh, Harbor Court on yeah, the Harbor 17th Court, floor. Right, right. They are hosting an open house where everybody can meet the members of the sixth cohort. Jason, no. although you are still here, <laughs> because you are still here, uh, you have something that you want yes, to share? Yes, I'm waving frantically. Um, we actually have uh, one of the one of the current cohort teams uh, in blue is is a team made up of graduates, Devly oh, graduates. Cool. Oh, cool. So super well, stoked for them. Well, and, tell, and which has one? A, which one? Uh, Grumble. So they right. they placed That's in right. Startup Weekend. It's actually made up of three different students from three different cohorts that came together mm-hmm. to build that up. And now they got into there and they're taking us to the next step. So well, you know, I was actually directing these questions to to Ryan, not because he's an excellent co-host, but because he's actually part of one a, a team that is part That's of right. the sixth cohort. That's right. Well, so so full, what team full, is that? What full disclosure as well? Um, uh, a very exciting. Um, the, there are. I should just sort of give lay the groundwork. Mm-hmm, there are ten sure. companies in the cohort, right. inclu- including five local companies. One of them is Grumble, which I, I'd love to talk about. Again, we we did talk about them on the show before. It's sort of like the Twitter of despair. It's a social network for those moments that you might not otherwise share. You know, forget the curated moments of Instagram of you and your mm-hmm, mai tai mm-hmm. on the beach. What about when you're stuck in traffic and mad, like say this morning? Right, right. You know, this is sort of a platform for that and for connecting people. Uh, it also has my Grumble. Also has my favorite piece of trivia because the, if you know the name of a group of kittens is a Kindle, you know the group uh, name of a group of ostriches is an ostentation. Well, the name of a group of pug dogs is a grumble. So the icon for Grumble is a He's pug. A pug dog. So in any case, uh, there are 10 companies. One of them is Grumble. Uh, there's uh, an, uh, other local companies, but the one that I am involved mm-hmm, with is mm-hmm. called Smart Yields. It is a software. Yields. yields. Yeah, uh-huh. Yes, uh, like crop yields, okay. farm yields. And it is basically a software-as-a-service application play to use sensors to give real-time data Insights, analytics, actionable information, and in the future, certainly building in control systems so that not only you as a farmer for small to medium farms can know how your farm is doing at any given moment, but also how it could do with changing different inputs, say soil composition, water, um, atmospheric conditions, and adapting to that. And in the future, certainly, um, maybe it can help you just begin the irrigation process on its own. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. It's actually 
the idea of lead mentor Vincent Kimura, who mm-hmm. I worked with uh, 15 years ago. He was actually the intern, and now he is the master, and I am the <laughs> Padawan, um, as well as Isar, who's a UH researcher, and Justin Hadani, who is a developer. Um, very exciting to be on the inside of a program that we've talked about and that I've covered and followed for years. Well, it, it really sounds like a, a potential full-featured show on Bite Marks Cafe, to talk about some of the cohort teams, some of the are, other cohorts, yeah. Because well, you know, we want to, we want to. I'm learn sure more. you can very appropriately uh, represent Smart Yields. Absolutely. So we can have two other companies here as part of the. Uh, so what, uh, Jason? Are you going to be uh, heading over there as well tonight for this? Uh, this He's got to catch a plane. Yeah, oh, I'm, that's I'm right. I'm on my way to the airport, unfortunately, but I, I'm super stoked for all the teams. And but, yeah, no, this is an exciting time for uh, startups, entrepreneurship, and and tech in general in Hawaii. So we definitely want to. Get the word out on all these activities. So a quick reminder, again, for the calendar, it is this evening, 6 p.m., Harbor Court, 17th floor, the open house for Blue Startups. You can meet all of the teams, all of the founders and some of the mentors, and really get an idea for the program. And all I can say is that if an organization, if a startup, if a brilliant idea that I am somehow magically and inexplicably associated with Mm -hmm. can make it into this program, I think Almost anyone can. So take your ideas and see what this is like because I think it's a great program. Well, you know, I I really would uh, definitely want to check that out because I think it's a very worthy activity. But I'm probably going to be heading over to the uh, Code for Hawaii project night. Oh, I'm hurt, Bert. (laughs) (laughs) But that's another another project that I'm sure we might have some time for later on. I love that we have um, so many technology events in this town that we're now conflicting on the calendar. That's right. That's true. That's true. So we'll we'll get into that later on. Uh, We'll take a short break. Yeah, we certainly want to apologize. We were unable to reach our guest from the Pisces Lunar Landing Pad Projects. You will hear about that in a future show. But when we return, we will be joined by Gerard Fryer and Vern Miyagi to explore the evolution of tsunami prediction, evaluation, and response plans. And of course, how do we tell the actual potential wave height after a hurricane strike. So we'll, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions uh, as part of this conversation. So give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 1-877-941-3689. And, of course, you can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. On the next applause in a small room, independent musicians Ron Artis II and Thunderstorm Artis are two brothers who write, sing, and perform their own songs, ranging in style from rock, blues, jazz, rap, R&B, and even soul. Join me, Jason Taglianetti, as we showcase these two versatile and wonderful musicians, Ron Artis II and Thunderstorm Artis, on applause in a small room, Sunday at 4 p.m. on HPR2. Did you really want to know what it's like? I love Hawaii Public Radio. I listen to it 24-7. I wouldn't do my share to make sure the radio station stays on all the time. I do not want it to go away. I want it to live on forever and ever. And if I can do my small part to make sure that that happens, I'm happy. Aloha. My name is Adele Rugg. I live in Kihei, Maui. And I'm proud to be a sustaining member of Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. 
Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Gerard Fryer and Vern Miyagi. And Gerard is the senior geophysicist over at the NOAA's Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. Vern, meanwhile, is the Administrator of Emergency Management for the State of Hawaii and oversees the day-to-day operations of Hawaii Management Management Agency and is responsible for coordinating the state's disaster preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation activities. And, of course, what happens when an earthquake strikes in Chile and what systems are in place to predict that tsunami? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Vern and uh, Gerard, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So uh, just a brief uh, sort of recollection. Back in September on the 16th, uh, as we were preparing for our radio show, there was an earthquake that uh, occurred in in, uh, Chile. And I am, you know, really curious about so the sort of the behind-the-scenes activities that go on, especially over at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, and then as it pertains to the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. It's you know we we normally get sort of notifications on our smartphones like something's happening, right? So when the first uh, indication came up that we there was like a seven point nine earthquake and uh, people's alarms were kind of going off, and then and then it got upgraded to like a the next reading was like an 8.3 earthquake. Right. So can you describe, Gerard, like what is going on in the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center? What is the bat signal right. that so, starts so things happening? There's a, I know there's an alarm. I was, I was there when alarms go off, but this is a big earthquake. So an alarm is going off, right? So, so Gerard, yes, what, uh, what happens? Uh, well, we have, we have an alarm. We have uh, the computers looking at, uh, is, is following a whole bunch of uh, different seismograms. Mm-hmm. And every time it sees a big signal, um, uh, if there's a large signal to noise, we'll get a page. So we knew within three minutes that there was a big earthquake. And, uh, um, and then, then we, we rush into our, um, our operations center and, uh, uh, and look, look at all of the seism- seismograms available f- um, in that area. And after a few more minutes, uh, you can triangulate on where it is. And, uh, and then once you know where it is, you go back and look at each individual trace and figure out how big it is. And, and, uh, and that's what was happening then. And that 7-9, uh, that originally came from us. And I think that took like six or seven minutes after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point in time, do you, do you know where the epicenter was? Oh, yes. We, 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 by that time, we know pretty darn accurately where it is mm-hmm. uh, the the magnitude isn't is is still a little iffy uh, especially if it's big as in, as in this case um, the problem is that that uh, big earthquakes speak with very deep voices they have very long wavelength mm-hmm. uh, disturbances and you know you're looking at low frequencies and if you're going to measure low frequencies it, it takes a little time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so we we went out with a seven nine. Uh, that would be a warning for Chile uh, and Peru, and um, uh, and then uh, some minutes after that, uh, we had a a, a much um, better quality determination of the magnitude. Um, I think it took I think I think it took about twenty minutes for that mm-hmm. one, and 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 then we knew that it was an eight three, and and uh, uh, and at that point. Hawaii goes into a watch. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I, again, I, I, I'd like to learn more about sort of that information gathering, how you have to revise on the fly as time unfolds. Um, one thing that I wanted to know certainly is that when it's a large earthquake and it's in a specific area around the Pacific Rim, um, is are there specific areas that we are especially sensitive to or excited about because of historical, or or can it really still come from anywhere that that you cannot make even uh, a, a rash judgment that, okay, well, because it's Chile, for example, and we know from past experience with Chile earthquakes that we are going to be especially careful. Um, do you think in that in those terms, or really the whole ring could be pointed at us? The, the whole ring can go off. Uh, however, we are especially vigilant about the Aleutians because the Aleutians the center section of the Aleutians, uh, a tsunami from there is pointed right at us, and it's also the shortest fuse. It, it, it's mm. it's going to get here in four and a half hours. Vern, did you want to add something to that? Well, yeah, that's uh, the thing that keeps me up at night is that Aleutian tsunami potential at four and a half hours, and that's the stuff that keeps me awake. But, you know, when, when as soon as uh, I was in a, a conference in the University of Hawaii, uh, my Training exercise uh, chief was there also, and our hi- hurricane planner was there also. We were in a conference at the University of Hawaii, ne- right next to the National Weather Service, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all, all of our phones starts buzzing, and the first thing we notice is uh, our watches have been declared for, for Hawaii based on the Chile ex- uh, earthquake. The first thing we do is get back to Diamond Head, back into our emergency ops center. Mm-hmm. And we have a pre- pre- pre-planned checklist uh, uh, to respond to this. The first thing was that we set up a... A video teleconference with uh, with the counties, with the state agencies, uh, also with our federal partners. And what the purpose of that vi- video teleconference is is to get PTWC, Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, on the video conference so that we can tell the counties and the participating agencies and stakeholders what's going on. Mm-hmm. And based on that watch declaration, it allows us to start preparing for, for a potential uh, event. I think uh, uh, Gerard can talk more about what the watch is, but I know that's just something may have happened, but nothing has been declared yet, so we mm. just need to get ready. So the, the watch is the actual trigger point, right? So when the Tsunami Warning Center uh, declares a, a, a watch, that's what triggers your processes to kick in. Correct. So when you are looking at this, uh, this event, this, this uh, size of the earthquake, um, where, I guess where along the way did you decide, okay, this has got to be a watch, and this is something that we need to... Uh, respond to? Um, As soon as we knew it was um, shallow, close to the ocean and big, um, um, uh, in fact, um, 7-9 would be a watch right away. That's our threshold Mm -hmm. uh, for Mm -hmm. for a watch for Hawaii. Uh, That means that something's going to happen in Hawaii. And and then... um, And then we basically turn around... Once... Once the earthquake has happened, um, you know, we, now we want to know about the tsunami, and so then we turn around and look at look at what the ocean is doing. Look at look at our, uh, our tide ga- the tide gauges that are along the Chilean coast, and also our, our deep ocean gauges, and and see how big the actual tsunami is. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then if that matches our expectations, um, then we proceed from there. Uh, I want to hear a little bit more about those ocean gauges because that's. In essence, the teleconference that you want to get information about. Is that correct? Well, from our standpoint, uh, once we go into a watch, we we have a procedure that we do, and that's uh, 
mainly getting the message out to the stakeholders, mm. getting current idea, current message about what's going on, and we make sure, we have to make sure that message is consistent with what is going out to the public. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, but as far as the the watch, what that tells us is that something has happened in the Pacific, an earthquake, and there may be some potential, uh, uh, there may be a potential effect, but we need to give t- Pacific Tsunami Warning Center time to go through all of their models and f- and figure out what it is, and we're in constant touch with them. Mm-hmm. Now. The the buoys is is critical for us, and I'm I'm, I'm getting into an area that that, uh, that Gerard would. But again, what was really neat about this one was that, uh, as we talked earlier, was that the, the models were tracking with the sensors, uh, the the buoys and the the, the points that they could uh, s- sense actually what was happening was tracking with the models, and uh, so that was that was really really hot really good. So you're seeing numbers that that followed what you predicted you would see. That's right. We 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 ran um, propagation models. You know, it's, it's just a just a uh, uh, program. Yeah, a, prog- a computer program, um, and and all of the models. We have a couple of different models. They they were agreeing with each other, and uh, and they also agreed with what we were seeing on the tide gauges and and on these deep ocean gauges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, how many minutes have lapsed? I guess between the the running of the program, uh, looking at what the program is, is is kind of indicating, and then actually getting some of that data from the, the ocean gauges? Uh, that, that's about an hour. An hour. Um, uh, maybe a little longer. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so you can see, okay, you remember I said uh, the, the one we worry about is the Aleutians. Um, we don't really have too much time to, to play with in the Aleutians. If you only have four hours, you, know, you, can't, you can't spend an hour... Thinking about it, or think right, 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 and and, so, and, and, so and these these waves uh, are traveling at a pretty good pace. Right. Yes, correct? we know we know ex- the yeah uh, tsunamis. Um, they are very very long wavelength waves, and, and they basically travel at a speed limit. And we know very well what that speed limit is, and uh, and therefore we can tell when they're going to arrive. So we knew something coming from Chile was going to take fifteen hours, and um, and our forecasts for that are, are correct within you know ten minutes or something. Um, and and the models in in the case of of the uh, September sixteenth, they all said that the the maximum elevation the waves would reach when they got to Hawaii was going to be about a meter, mm-hmm. so so you know three point three feet, and uh, and that is our that is our threshold for a warning. If we think it's going to be a meter or more, that's a warning. Um, so it's oh, pretty so close. We, we're going from watch to warning. Uh, is, is, if is, it that, had, if it is that what you're implying? Yes. Um, however, uh, because of recent experience, the, uh, in 2010, where we had a, another tsunami from Chile, and in 2012, when we had a tsunami from uh, Haida Gwaii in Canada, um, both of those tsunamis also, we, we forecast that they would be a meter, and indeed they were a little bit bigger than that. Um, but for neither of those was the warning actually necessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so in the interim, I had gone through and looked at all of the historical data um, for for tsunami run up, uh, how high the tsunami gets on land in Hawaii, uh, and I realized that it, it has to be like 1.3 or 1.4 meters before there's any actual damage. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and so I had all that knowledge, and and um, and I had I had presented all this. Um, to to our friends at, at State Civil Defense, uh, at, to Hawaii Emergency Management. No, that's Manage- okay. I'm, I was going to say Civil Defense too. <laughs> okay. And 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 so so they they are uh, they're softened up. So when this thing happened on September 16th, um, we told them uh, this is going to 
we're fairly confident this is only going to warrant an advisory. And an, ad- an advisory means uh, you don't have to evacuate, but stay off the beach and stay out of the water. Close and vessels certainly have to be careful as well. Right. Ocean vessels. Well, so I think that's interesting. We're talking to Gerard Fryer from the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center and Vern Miyagi from what was previously known as State Civil Defense and now Hawaii Emergency, Emergency Management Agency, or HIEMA. Um, either, I think, we know who, who we're talking to. And if you have a question for this esteemed panel of experts for a a uh, level of hazard and concern that is very near and dear to our heart. You can call and ask them at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. But Vern, so from what I, what it sounds like Gerard is saying is that had this September event happened two or three years ago, the, the, the button would have been pushed, that we would have gotten to the point where uh, action has to be taken, evacu- evacuation has to be considered, but the data has gotten better and experience has gotten better that that button was not pushed last month. I agree. You know, I think the science has improved so much better. And what it does is it allows us to to make better decisions on what is actually happening. Uh, I think Gerard made an interesting comment. I think I saw it on the news uh, during the event when he said that a few years ago, five years ago, this would have been a warning. So that really, we really appreciate that because we didn't do an evacuation. uh, We didn't do the sirens and we put, and it turned out to be the correct call. Uh, the advisory. I mean, one thing that came out in the in the the public uh, media at that time was that there was some confusion about watch advisory and warning. In fact, one of the radio stations in the morning after said was saying something about why are we getting concerned about a watch, uh, uh, an advisory because it's not even a watch yet. So there's a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of how the hierarchy goes. And I know the, the the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center has. We have to work closely with them on on these on these. Uh, alert levels, but we have to make sure the public understands what they mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so in terms of uh, uh, trying to determine the level of information that you're conveying out there and being cognizant of the fact that it's not a warning, right? It's, it's still a, a watch. Uh, but everybody is still at a kind of heightened level of, of uh, awareness, right? Uh, you know, back at, the, back at Diamond Head. Um, h- how are you getting sort of the updates are you regularly in conversation with the Tsunami Warning Center? And and uh, what is it that you distribute your information out to in terms of the people that are your stakeholders? Okay, well, when we have the first uh, video teleconference, we're in constant touch with uh, the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, either with uh, Chip McCreary or, or Dr. Fryer here. So we're in constant touch with them, and we're getting the word out to the to the people. Now, we have media all over our place at that time. So we have the the TV stations there, so we're having press conferences and briefing them, updating them with the latest data that we're getting from PTWC and emphasizing what the status of the alert is. Uh, And and that's how we're getting the word out to the people. It's it's really what's happened, what we're doing, and what you guys should be doing too. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly I think that the interface for most members of the public is the translation of your information through the media. I am certain that um, between the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center and the Hawaii Emergency Management uh, Agency, that uh, the the protocols, the, what, what, the 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 phone tree—I mean, however that works—is is pretty nailed down. Um, but for media organizations, Hawaii News Now or Hawaii Public Radio, um, is there also some protocol? Is there a red phone for them? I mean, uh, how does that kind of come together to really focus on a con- uh, a consistent message? Propagated to the public. Well, what we what we would be working on is what is called a joint in information center, 
And this would be the news media. We'd, we'd all meet together and get the consistent message out. Of course, we're plugged into PTWC, and also the news media is also out, out at PTWC. So we have to make sure that that joint message goes out. Now, if, if it's at a watch level, does the, does, do your organizations activate this joint information center, or does it, does it only get activated if it goes to the, uh, the warning level? Well, we start putting it together. Uh, in anticipation of it going high, we start putting it together, and our public affairs uh, uh, people contact with the other the, the governor's office and the other pe- uh, public affairs organizations just to start getting getting the word, to getting the the body together. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. at the same time, when the press is in our in our emergency operations mm-hmm. center and at the PTWC, we're getting this the consistent messaging of going on what exactly is going on. Now, the the watch is interesting, as as Gerard said. On the watch, there means something. There, there has been an earthquake, and something may have happened, but the PTWC needs time to analyze into what it is. Mm-hmm. So as we're going through, uh, Chip McCreary from the PTWC called us and indicated that this would probably be a borderline advisory. Okay, mm-hmm. In other words, uh, really no big effect on land, but we have to watch out for the, some rise in the sea level, less than a meter. And then, you know, the boaters, swimmers, uh, beach course, just be, be cautious and stay right. out of the water. And that's why Hanauma Bay was closed for a while. Right, right, but right, th- right. That's the type of uh, cautions that go out to the counties and precaution measures that, precautionary mm-hmm. measures that they can take. Mm-hmm. And, Gerard, I, I, I just have, feel like I need to take my hat off to you as a, as a wannabe journalist and certainly as an admirer of, <laughs> of the importance of outreach to a community from a scientific standpoint, from a public safety standpoint. But when a news agency is looking for updates and they've gone live and they've committed their broadcast to nonstop coverage, there is sort of this issue where they're going to continue to ask you the same question in five or six different ways for five or six different media outlets. And you maintain composure and patience (laughs) and you are perfectly capable of answering the same question over and over and over again. Uh, Well, thank you. I I, I try to be coherent. Um, uh, Yeah, that's very kind. of course, for the news media, especially for something like this, the, the, um, the greatest frustration is, is our frustration also. Uh, we've had this event. We've called people's attention to it. You know, we've now gone to an advisory. So, and, and now, okay, they're live and they want information. And the information comes in slowly. Mm-hmm. The, the tsunami is, is it, it's traveling across the ocean at 500 miles an hour, but but the ocean is a big place, and it takes a couple of hours to get to the next tide gauge. And you know, um, and, so. and how you communicate to the media has to be very—I'm uh, not saying controlled, but you know, sort of measured because you don't want to get them too excited, especially if it's just at a at a sort of a marginal level. But at the same time, you want to be cautious about perhaps underplaying the potential. Uh, the, the, that that's right, um, and and uh, I, I have I have made a few mistakes uh, in the past, <laughs> and and uh, particularly in 2012 um, for the uh, the tsunami from Haida Gwaii, I uh, uh, I wasn't quite on message then. Um, uh, well, we we we're not here to put you on the spot, <laughs> <laughs> but I I, I do want to point out that. Uh, you know, we're talking to uh, Gerard Fryer from the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center and Vern Miyagi from the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, and we're talking about tsunamis and particularly about what happened behind the scenes on the September 16th. And if you have a comment or question, you can feel free to give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We had a shy caller earlier that, of course, 
you know, I don't know, maybe we, we intimidate them with our, I don't know, verboseness. Your handsomeness. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they wanted to ask this question. I think it's a, it's a good question. And the, uh, the question is, on, in the event that a earthquake occurs on the first of the month when all the sirens are being tested, what is it that goes through the minds of, uh, let's say, you know, emergency management agency or the Department of Emergency Management or at the city and county? I mean, what, uh, you know, there's a regularly scheduled testing of the sirens. I mean, and now there's this earthquake. How do you play both of those? Vern? I tell that is a very, very good question. You know, depending on when the earthquake triggers and uh, PTWC alerts on it, you know, we're going to go through the, the standard test. Uh, beginning of the month, on the 1st, we'll go through the test. Now, if, let's say, the worst case is while the sirens are going off, we get this message from PTWC that, say, puts us in a watch, we'll immediately have to go out with the media, with the press coverage, and say, this is what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Our sirens mm-hmm. are going off. However, we have received word that there is an earthquake, say, in Aleutian Islands, and that is the, the, the latest message right now, but we'll get back to you folks on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Then we'll call in the VTC again, the video teleconference, and get our stakeholders and counties aware of what's going on. And we can't, we, you know, you, you have to do what you have to do. The We've had a major tsunami on April 1st. Uh, we're actually more than one. Whether right. we, had, we had a major tsunami April 1st uh, in 1946 mm-hmm. uh, you know, before the warning system was there. But uh, last year, 2014, we had a we had a, a major earthquake in Chile again on April 1st. Um, fortunately, uh, that that was only advisory. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, um, the earthquake was very cooperative. It didn't happen at 11:45 on the <laughs> right. <laughs> right, so. right. Excellent. Well, um, th- we have many more questions, and it's fascinating to step through this process when, of course, Vern Miyagi and Gerard Fryer are not actually trying to untangle the information leading up to perhaps a tsunami or hurricane evacuation warning. Uh, so we'll continue our conversation after a short break. Uh, how does undersea terrain affect what reaches way? Of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. Of course, you can call us. Right here, we're live in the studio, 941-3689, or from the neighbor islands, you can call us at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Adagio, Allegro, Presto. Timing is everything, and so is timelessness, like the great classical music you hear on HPR One seven days a week. This is music director Gene Schiller, and we're here to ask for your support for the good time you find on both HPR streams, music, and news from around the world. Celebration 2015 starts on the 13th. Please give early and help us finish the drive in good time. Thanks. To have ongoing access to some of the best conversations on the planet, you know, very exciting to to have a statewide conversation on an ongoing basis. I love hearing what's going on 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 the other islands. You know, it's not it's not an interruption to my day to hear what's going on. I'm Dwayne Preble, and I'm a sustaining member of Hawaii Public Radio. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Gerard Fryer and Vern Miyagi about preparing for tsunamis. And, of course, you can give us a call here. That number is, again, 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Now, what uh, we want to get into a little bit is, you know, the uh, sensors. We kind of hinted about what is out there. You talk about the deep ocean sensors. What exactly is in the ocean that helps us 
get an idea of what's happening between here and here in Chile, here in the Aleutians, here in Japan. I mean, what, what are we looking at? Are we looking at a bunch of sensors that's given us all kinds of data, or are we looking at maybe one or two and you know, we need more? There is a, a very sparse network um, of, of these deep ocean sensors, and, and they're, they're strung out um, just seaward of, of the great ocean trenches of the world. And um, uh, with a special concentration in the Aleutians, um, mm. because that is so important to us in Hawaii. Uh, and what these things are, it's, it's basically a little pressure sensor that sits on the ocean bottom, and it, it talks to a surface boy, and the, the surface boy talks to the Iridium satellite constellation, and then down to us at the warning center. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, uh, and these things, uh, when they work, they, they work wonderfully. Uh, they're a little bit um, sensitive and... and uh, uh, occasionally, you know, it, it, the ocean can be a, a tough environment, mm. and occasionally the surface buoy goes drifts away or something. Um, but mostly they're up and they work, and uh, and and they really are nice. But we also have uh, everywhere there's an island. Um, you know, most most ports and harbors in the world have tide gauges just to measure the um, variation in in sea level. Um, and those things also measure tsunamis nicely. So we have all of that information all streaming into the warning center in real time. Mm-hmm. But it's not like uh, we have a magical globe-like grid of sensors across everything. Before the break, you had talked about, you know, we get this reading, but we have to wait a certain amount of time before it reaches the next uh, sensor. I mean, uh, how wide are those gaps? Um, it, it really you know, it, it really depends on how far apart the islands right, are. Right, right. Uh, in, in, on September 16th, uh, um, I hung around at the warning center, you know, in, until the tsunami got to Easter Island, mm. and uh, and that you know there was like that. I think that was two hours after the the last gauge we we got on on uh, from the coast of South America, um, uh, and then when it came in on Easter Island and and we compared it to our models, it was it was spot on. So we, you know, so mm-hmm. so then mm-hmm. we knew okay, we've called this one right. We mm-hmm. were very very happy. So, uh, and just to get my bearings straight, so four hours from the Aleutians and 16 hours from Chile. So, what, the Aleutians are one-fourth the distance between here and Chile? Pretty, pretty much. Wow, uh, people, okay. people, you know, people don't realize uh, South America uh, is, is, is offset way to the east of North America. Mm-hmm, so so mm-hmm. it's a long way to Chile. Okay, okay. Now, we've got a couple calls, and we want to make sure that we get to them. And, of course, if you want to give us a call, that number is 941-3689 from Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we want to welcome Tony from Maui to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Yeah, aloha. Um I'm assuming that, you know, back in 46 and 60, when the two major tsunamis that caused the major damage in Hawaii, there weren't those ocean sensors. But I wonder if, if there was any way to know what the size of the wave was. You, you were talking about the watch um, trigger is like one meter, and then a warning was one point something. Do, do we have any idea how large those waves were as it was traveling through the ocean? Okay, thanks. Thanks, question. Tony. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, w- what we have done is we have we have simulated those events. Uh, we we have a lot of information from around the Hawaiian Islands about how high the tsunami got, you know, how how high up on the coast it got. We have less information about how far inland it flooded. Uh, mm-hmm. We do have that information from Hilo, and and so uh, that was 1946. Yeah, yeah, we also have that for 1960. 
And uh, and so when you run run these models, you try to simulate these previous events and reproduce the information, um, uh, re- reproduce the observations that were made at the time. Um, and okay, if you've reproduced the observations, now go back and look at what at how big the tsunami was on the deep ocean. And uh, both of those tsunamis were. Uh, like a meter and a half high out on the deep ocean, mm. and this is this is pretty impressive. That doesn't sound like much, you know. That's like five feet, um, but we're talking about something that has a wavelength of of about a hundred miles. So, mm-hmm. so you know, a five foot rise in water with a you know with a very long wavelength. That's a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, good. Thanks, thanks, Tony, for calling that in. And we want to go to uh, Peter Hirai, who I'm very familiar with. He's over at the uh, Department of Emergency Management. I think maybe he wants to call in and correct. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. Anyway, Peter, thanks for joining us at Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, I just wanted to uh, thank our close partners, Vern Miyagi and and uh, Gerard Fryer. Uh, we work very closely at the county with the state partners and Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. But I wanted to clarify something about the sirens, also. Okay, good, sure. good. Yeah, you know, the sirens for the monthly test, and we always wonder what we would do if we had some kind of emergency during the monthly test. The monthly test, the sirens go off for one minute, and then we shut them down. During an actual emergency, we we would sound them for a full three minutes so people would know something was up. And in addition to that, during a tsunami warning, what we do is we sound the sirens every hour on the hour until wave arrival time, so... Typically, we start about four to five hours before the wave arrives, and we'll sound the sirens every single hour. You'll hear them over and over again. You'll get sick of them. But that's because we want to make sure people know that an evacuation is occurring. Well, that so. yeah, no, Peter, that's, a, that's excellent because the, you know, what you're saying is that you will obviously know that it is a real warning because the sirens will just Keep go going. off and you know, you know, it'll be nonstop. Thank you, Definitely. Peter. Definitely. Yeah, Thank thanks. you, folks. Thanks, thanks, Peter, for calling. Glad you're listening to the show. Well, we have such esteemed guests on the show. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> so we have these sensors, and we're we're collecting data from that. I know that we sometimes see news stories, for example, of buoys that are damaged, even just near offshore. Um, it it makes me wonder where's the responsibility for these, this network of sensors? Is it an international coalition that collects and disseminates these data and maintains these buoys? You talk about the buoys being very important from the Aleutian Islands. Are they Hawaii-designated buoys, or are they um, just federal or other government um, uh, resources? Uh, well, those those are federal. They're actually operated uh, and maintained by the National Data Buoy Center, which is in Mississippi. Um, but... Uh, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is uh, is trying to get and, and has very successfully um, convinced other countries to invest in this technology. Uh, in particular, Chile and uh, the Chileans have, I think, they have three of these boys, and they're they're going to s- install some more, mm. and and they're going to be responsible for maintaining those. Um, and that means that we don't have to send a ship down there to to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and the Australians have one. The Indonesian the Indonesians have one. The Indians have have one. So uh, it's becoming international. Mm-hmm. I have a, another uh, question that came in, uh, and of course they don't want to go on on the air. Uh, but if you have a five meter wave that is out there in the ocean, and and uh, you are actually in the ocean and, and experiencing this. Uh, what would you actually encounter? Uh, it's it would be very subtle. I, I 
uh, five meters is a lot, but uh, okay. So let's say we're going. Let's go back to the one meter. Let's, well, even even one. No, well, even even if it was even if it was five meters, uh, you may not realize that the thing has passed you mm-hmm. um, be, mm. because the, because it would be a slow rise in sea level. Uh, it would take about you know five or six minutes to reach its maximum elevation, and then it would be like another. Ten minutes or so to reach the, tr- the the trough, and then, then say five more minutes to reach the next peak. So, so there's just going to be a slow variation in sea level. So, out, so out in the deep ocean, uh, it really is no hazard at all, and you might not even feel it. You mm-hmm. probably would not. So, when you start talking about the actual wave height, whether it's you know one meter or two meters, uh, in the ocean measurement, and then as it approaches land and actually comes on shore, uh, how much of that is translatable to the amount of sea level rise i guess uh you know when you start talking about 1 meter 2 meter yeah uh the speed of the waves depends on how deep the water is mm-hmm. uh, and and in in shallower water they go slower and as they slow down to carry the same amount of energy per unit time that they have to grow in height and and you know surfers know this all um you know mm. surfing right, waves right, do right, that right, they right, also right, they right. also grow as they get into shallow water um and for a tsunami on a on a fairly uniform, uh, gently sloping um, beach, the the amplification is something like a factor of four or five. So if it's a meter high on the out on the deep ocean, it's wow. going to be four meters high when it hits the hits the coast. Well, you know, one of the things that I did want to ask before we run out of time on this fascinating show, Vern, is that earlier this year we talked about the development of extreme tsunami evacuation maps. And we've just heard about the difference between the Chile earthquake, 14 hours, dilutions, with there's five hours. Um, a lot of people are worried about local earthquakes, Big Island, a significant chunk of the Big Island just falling into the ocean and causing a wave. Um, well, how how have you seen the re- reaction to the development of these now new extreme tsunami evacuation areas? Well, the re- reaction, of course, is very very uh, very tentative and very worrisome. Uh, a, lot, a lot of this was uh, the, the new wave inundation zones uh, were developed after Tohoku. Uh, we had people from here that went over to Tohoku analyze the area, and about the same time, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Fry, but the University of Hawaii uh, researchers uh, were starting to look at that, and we had a similar earthquake targeted or similar fault targeted for, for the state. So that's where these brand-new studies came up and these brand-new inunda- uh, inundation and evacuation zones came up. Mm-hmm. And they're significantly further inland than yes. what we had previously been taught, even as children, you need to get to, to be safe. Uh, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, the, the evacuation zone for the, the extreme evacuation is sig- zone is significantly larger. Uh, however, this is a fairly low probability event, mm. so so we don't want people to get get too yeah. alarmed by it. Um, but it, it it is high enough probability that uh, that it really is necessary for for us to have a policy. So that's why it was done. Now you know I want to I want to put you guys on the spot because uh, we had that opportunity, <laughs> and you know this has been a very active hurricane season. We've seen just a multitude of hurricanes passing uh, near uh, near to Hawaii and fortunate, I think, for all of us that it, it hasn't had a direct strike. Uh, so I guess from, from a uh, disaster management standpoint, communicating to the public, this has been sort of promoted as being one of the major sort of El Nino seasons. Uh, has, it, has it sort of lived up to your expectation, Vern? Well, m- most definitely. I've, 
I understand that with the last two two uh, name storms that came through here, we already have reached the the record mm-hmm. uh, beyond whatever's happened before. Uh, it has lived up to the El Nino uh, reputation, reputation. Uh-huh. but uh, you know I got I gotta say thanks to the science, the National Weather Service, the Pacific uh, Hurricane Center. You know they've been pretty much spot on on what they've been seeing. What's been kind of unusual this time is that normally we track it from uh, Mexico, Central America, crosses the 140-degree line, and then we start our processes. Uh, the last few, like Kilo and the, the last one, Ojo, came, uh, came kind uh, of uh, formed to the west of the 140-degree line. Mm-hmm. But, not, but Weather Service was on it. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they were calling us, letting us know there's something, something to be concerned about here, and that's where we get the video teleconferencing again to get all of the stakeholders involved. Yeah, I think the general public uh, is is definitely much more aware of the weather situation now with all the science that's available. So we want to find out where can we find out more information, keep track keep track of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency and, of course, the uh, Pacific Tsunami Warning. I mean, where can we go and find out more? Well, you know, to make it very simple, this is what Miyagi would do. He would just Google. <laughs> okay. Hawaii Emergency Management Agency and see what's there. Google uh, Department of Emergency Management for the city and county of Honolulu and the other counties. And they have all of the, the data there. The tsunami stuff, especially about how to evacuate and how high to go mm. uh, when, the, when there's a wave coming. So all good stuff there. And yeah. Gerard? Uh, we're at ptwc.weather.gov. And um, yeah, yeah, I know our webpage is not all that wonderful. Um, there's it, a we, lot of information. It will be improved. Uh, we're, oh. we're working on it. Well, Excellent. you know, you guys have been really great to be, not only be on the show, but just uh, been able to give the public the information that is required to better understand what is happening, especially with this uh, last tsunami. Gerard Fryer is the uh, senior geophysicist over at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, and Vern Miyagi is the administrator over at the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Aloha. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week as we are going to be in Hawaii Public Radio's Fall Pledge Week Celebration 2015. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Hebu and a song called Dissolve. And be sure to join us next week for Celebration 2015.